I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth and Mission. City officials have been arguing for two months about how many homeless people to move into empty hotel rooms. But what are these homeless hotels actually like? Supervisor Matt Haney has spent the past two weeks working inside one and is here to describe what it was like and why he's more convinced than ever that hotel rooms are the answer for homeless people during the COVID-19 pandemic. Supervisor Matt Haney, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Too bad it's not in person, but we'll do that again sometime soon, hopefully. Um, So I wanted to ask you about your stint as a uh, disaster service worker in a homeless hotel. You've been doing that for a couple of weeks now, is that correct? Yes, I'm uh, in my second week as a disaster service worker. Uh, I've been uh, deployed to a hotel where there are about 60 people who have been brought in directly off of the streets. Uh, They've been there for about a month and uh, I've been there a couple weeks and I'm one of the thousands of mostly city workers who have been deployed. Um, It's actually in our contract that uh, as a city worker in a situation where there's a disaster like this one that we can be deployed to do whatever the city needs and and that's elected officials too, like yourself? That's elected officials as well. Uh, you still have to say yes. And uh, I actually, you know, I volunteered to do it. Uh, most of the people who are doing it are uh, redeployed as part of their job. So this is their job for now. Uh, they were maybe at home and furloughed and now they're going back in. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's honestly, an, it's an extraordinary thing because these folks, you know, you've got, you know, Tom, who's an engineer at the PUC, you've got Sarah, who's a a tax collector, and now they're out there, you know, on the front lines of this crisis, putting themselves at risk and helping people who are in need. So it is an extraordinary thing. And I do nights and evenings and weekends, so I can still do my day job. Oh, wow. Um, What time is your shift at the hotel? My shift is 3 to 11 p.m., Wednesday through Sunday. So. That's a long I'm working day. about a hundred hour weeks during. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I had to add it up. Uh, and, uh, but you know, it's a huge part of my job is right now we're all focused on how to keep people protected so they don't get sick or get others sick. And one of the huge challenges that we have, which I'm sure we'll talk about is how we get people who may be more vulnerable to getting sick or getting others sick because they don't have a place to shelter in place because they're yeah. in the street because they're in a crowded shelter. And I, you know, I've been advocating for us to open up more of these sites, but it's an entirely different experience when you're there yourself. Well, we'll talk about the larger policy questions, but first I wanted to hear what it's like actually inside the hotel. How many people are staying there? What do you see? How are they doing? You know, it, uh, what's interesting about it um, is m- maybe the most interesting thing about it is how little that happens that actually is all that interesting. It's <laughs> right. a good thing. Yeah, because you mostly just see closed doors or are you actually oh, going I, into people's I, rooms? I, I talk to people throughout the day. Uh, I see the guests all the time. What I mean by that, I guess, is that, you know, when we go and check on them, either to give them a temperature check or just see how they're doing or drop off food three times a day, uh, it's usually pretty normal. It's, hey, how you doing? Mm-hmm. The room looks fine. Uh, you know, they 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 they're doing you know well in general. They're watching TV. They're staying inside the room most of the day, and they smile and say thank you for the food. And 
you know, that's it. And it, it doesn't, I'm sure it, it's not actually that different than uh, what it would normally be like to have somebody who, who is normally a guest at these hotels. Mm-hmm. What is actually, especially, um, you know, what is hard to imagine is the fact that these folks just a few weeks ago were living on sidewalks and, yeah. and under trees during this pandemic. That's what's most hard to imagine and hard to accept. Do they seem relieved to be inside or do they seem scared that because of the circumstances that brought them inside are this horrible pandemic? They are overwhelmingly uh, relieved and appreciative. Mm. And they, I think they're anxious because they don't know when this will end and when they'll be maybe, you know, they're afraid of being put back on the street. But they are overwhelmingly appreciative and grateful. uh, And that. You know, I, and, and I have had to think about this, right? Because we want them to be appreciative and grateful, but they also don't owe that to me. You know, they don't need mm-hmm. to smile at me for me to, me or others, or for us as a city to give them food and to make sure they're safe during this time. What kind of food are you giving uh, them? So these, it's good food. They get three meals a day. Uh, it's, uh, it's catered food. Uh, it's, you know, they have chicken and vegetables last night uh, and, uh, and they get bread and juice. Uh, and they're usually home for dinner. You know, I'm, I'm there during the dinner shift. So they're usually there. You know, I'd say the large majority of them are there during dinner. They have to check in and out whenever they leave. They have multiple wellness checks a day. They have uh, temperature checks. So, you know, one of the things is just the temperature checks are so important because if they're on the street, we don't know if you get sick and we can't help you when you do, at least not immediately. But if you're in a hotel, we know immediately if you're sick and we can isolate you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we can make sure that you're not going to get other people sick. And that alone is a huge thing. These are all people who are over 60 years old or, and or have an underlying medical condition. So some of them have HIV. Uh, some of them have uh, serious uh, diabetes. Uh, most of them are older. Um, I'd say about half are African-American. All of them were in San Francisco before this pandemic started here. Mm-hmm. So they were all in our system of coordinated entry. They are not people who just showed up. Uh, some of them have been housed in the past. Um, yes, some of them have substance use addictions. Um, there's no doubt about that. Are you in charge of giving them, um, there was, you know, some headlines the other week about how the city's providing alcohol and um, what were the other substances? I think uh, medical marijuana in some cases. Um, are you delivering that? that? That's absolutely not happening at the shelter in place hotels. The shelter, the shelter in place hotels are the ones that we refer to because they are people who are not COVID positive. They are COVID negative. And th- at least, you know, some of them may become COVID positive while they're at the hotels. That hasn't happened in the hotel that I'm at. And if it did, we w- they would then be put in isolation in a different hotel. Uh, so we are not delivering actually anything to them from the outside uh, other than food. Uh, they, they, I, I, apparently there were a few cases of that in the COVID positive hotels because those are people who really cannot leave the room. Mm-hmm. These folks are allowed to leave their rooms. They rarely do, honestly. Are they leaving their rooms to get substances or do you know? I don't know. I mean, there, there isn't mm-hmm. substance use that's allowed on the site. Uh, I have not seen substance use either, you know, looking in people's rooms or, or around the site. It's certainly not allowed in open areas, in public areas of the site. And there is behavioral health and in-home supportive services staff also on site. And so they check in on people regularly. 
They make sure that people are doing all right. And for people who have severe substance use, they will get assistance from behavioral health. And we have had, uh, there was one person who left our site to go into detox. Uh, so there's an opportunity for people who have higher levels of need, or if they, or if they're, they have serious substance use, we may check in on them more. We may send behavioral health or Department of Public Health to come in and work with them. And that's not something that could happen at all when they're on the street. I mean, we, we, not only can we not protect them from COVID, we can't protect them from the other illnesses adequately that they're experiencing. As I said, we have a handful of people who have HIV. And we have people who are homeless living on sidewalks who have HIV in San Francisco. Wow, that's really sad. So has working in this hotel um, given you any insight into whether you believe the mayor's, um, you know, her, she's saying that we can't move as many homeless people off the streets as the supervisors would like because it's just not as easy as they think it is. And these people need a lot more, um, you know, case management and on-site support that we can't provide and require a lot more help than you would think. Has working inside this hotel made you believe that more or less, would you say? You know, I continue to believe that we can bring, and we have a responsibility to bring a lot more people inside. Uh, in the Tenderloin, before this pandemic, we had about 150 tents, uh, you know, roughly that many people in those tents. We are now at 450. Uh, the, the numbers of people on our streets and sidewalks are skyrocketing. And yet here, even in the Tenderloin and in the financial district, we have dozens and dozens of empty, completely empty hotels. And what I have seen in the hotels that I've been in, and I work in one, but I've been to five. And I've been to the largest one. There's one that has 400 rooms, which sort of has a, a bit of a, a mystique around it because it had some challenges early on in opening up, but I think has become very stable. Uh, and, and, I, and I spent an entire day working at that, at that site. That we can do this, that we are doing this. You know, I, I've, I've communicated to the mayor's office and, HSA since I've been there and said, you know, my experience has been very positive and I think it's something we should be celebrating. This is something we should be so proud of as a city that not just that we're doing this, but that regular city workers are in there, you know, helping their neighbors, cleaning up, you know, and they're, and they're doing it and, and they're overwhelmingly enjoying it in the sense that they're learning and they're helping. And it's made me hopeful for our city and what we're capable of. Uh, and I do think we can do a lot more of it. I continue to think we can do a lot more of it. The sites that are open right now have stabilized and are, and are, and are well-staffed and adequately staffed. I have been to the five sites. I asked at each site, do you believe that this site is well-staffed? And they've said yes. And some have said actually that we are probably overstaffed, which is great. <laughs> I mean, you know, but, but, and I've spoken, continue to speak to all the nonprofits. So one thing to be clear, each of the hotels, has a, has a site lead that is a nonprofit that is normally running shelters, nav centers, or providing homeless services. So it's not just like the, you know, people like me are on, on our own. Uh, it's, 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 it's staffed by professionals. And each, and let me just like paint a picture. You've got in each individual um, shift, you have um, at least three, usually four in my site with 60 rooms, uh, DSWs who are city workers, you have two shelter staff who might deal with the more intensive things. During the day, you have behavioral health folks on site. You have three full-time security who are there at every shift. And then you have sheriffs that stop by once an hour. It's a very well-staffed operation. And I think it's that 
can be replicated. Cool. And then wanted to ask you as well um, how you think the safe sleeping site that's open next to the Asian Art Museum is going so far. Do you like that model? Um, is it working or would you rather just the hotels ramp up? You know, I am not convinced that that model uh, is one that makes sense. Uh, I was I went by there last night. One of the other things that happens is I get off at 11 and I walk from uh, Soma, where the hotel is that I'm working at, to the Tenderloin. Wow, that must be quite a walk at 11 at night. It is a walk. And and honestly, I, I have never seen the neighborhood that I live in um, have a have more of a feeling of, of, of chaos and of uh, really lawlessness, candidly. And this is a neighborhood that already struggles in some ways, in many ways, with making sure that residents are safe. Uh, there are more people on the streets. There are more people in crisis. Uh, people feel more alone and abandoned. So it was, it's a bit off-putting to me to see this huge operation of this tent site that last night had dozens and dozens of staff. It's a massive operation. I mean, I'm not even convinced that it's cheaper than a hotel. And then we have, we have 100 feet from that site, literally made 150 people in front of the library selling and using drugs, uh, mostly. Uh, and then I walk through the Tenderloin and there's more and more tents. There's more and more people who are being abandoned. And then there's tons of empty hotels. I mean, I just, the amount of energy that's being put to making, to creating that site and keeping people on sidewalks in a, in a controlled way, which hasn't seemed to help the Tenderloin much and hasn't addressed the broader issues at all. Uh, I really question very strongly whether that's the right approach. Particularly, so that hasn't alleviated the number of tents in the no, Tenderloin? No, in fact, uh, there were a, over 100 tents that were already in that area, and they actually had to make some of the people to, uh, they, had to they had to remove some of the people. So there's more tents set up in the Tenderloin now since they've set that site up. And yes, are there some good things happening there? Absolutely. Are the staff amazing from Urban Alchemy? Yes, absolutely. It's great that people are getting three meals a day, all of that. But why not do that inside where it's warm, where the site that I have that I'm at seems to me to be able to be a much more reasonable, rational place to protect people and to protect people from others. Uh, you know, they got a bed and a TV and people stay inside. Let's, and I, and I have gone to that site, this, the safe sleeping site. And I walked around and I asked a number of people who are staying there, would you, would you rather be in a hotel? And they looked at me like I had lost my mind. Would I rather be inside with a bed? Obviously. <laughs> I mean, I said, is that how everyone else fears? And she's, they, they were like, are, are you kidding me? I mean, this narrative that those people want to stay out there and don't want to be inside is not true at all. Of course, there are some people who that's the case for, but that's not the people who are now in a very controlled environment with tons of rules and oversight. People who are willing to accept that would accept that inside. Yeah. And what is the plan both for the hotels and the safe sleeping sites once hopefully eventually this pandemic is over? And, you know, how do you move all of those homeless people out once, you know, tourists and others come back and are actually paying for the rooms or, you know, the Asian Art Museum and Main Library open up again and don't want a big camp in between them? Like, how do you it seems kind of unfair to just be like, see ya. Or is there a plan? You know, the people who are staying at the hotel I'm working at. Um, as I said, are overwhelmingly over 60 years old or, or very sick. Some, some are, are over 80. 
they are people in many cases who've been on the streets for a long time. They're people who were here before, who are in coordinated entry. It's unimaginable, uh, unconscionable that our city would put them back out onto the street. Who, 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 who does that help? Doesn't help them. And as long as there's a threat of a pandemic, we are, we as San Franciscans who have housing are put at risk by having them on the street. And, and so, you know, and, and homelessness on a, on, a, on a normal day in San Francisco is just a public health risk and unacceptable. So we need a plan to, for the folks, absolutely the people who were in coordinate entry and are over 60, for them to, for this to be the end of homelessness for them. And, it, and some have said to me, it's, it's, it's shocking to me that it's taken a pandemic for me to be housed, but I'll take it. And, and, and that, you know, and, and so this will hopefully be one of the good things that comes out of this is the healing that people are experiencing from being inside now that we can continue that. Cause a lot of people now for the first time, or maybe not for the first time, but they're saying, you know, I can do this and I want to stay in housing or I want treatment. You know, people who are concerned about drug use and mental illness, we got to get people inside and start to have to make it clear that they can have a pathway to get well. And, and we've provided that for some people through this. So what are we gonna do? We're gonna have to buy some of these hotels. Some of these hotel owners are gonna wanna sell. We're gonna have to find a way to unlock the Prop C money this November uh, so that we can unlock the money for new, to purchase new sites and to pay for vouchers. We're, we're gonna have to purchase some of these hotels or provide new sites through a mental health bond that we're working on with the mayor. So. I think that we can, at least for the people that we've already gotten inside who are overwhelmingly older and sick or sick, that we can keep them inside. And that will be what I fight for. And I hope that our city is, is I mean, do people want to go back to the way it was? Do you want to release these people onto the street? I mean, it's not only is it bad for neighborhoods and residents and, and businesses and everyone, it's in- inhumane. I mean, sick, older people, like they're, you know, it's... I, I just can't imagine anyone going and meeting these folks and seeing these folks, the ones who are inside now. You know, I, I recognize that there are people who are still on the street who have a lot of challenges, who are younger, who are, you know, and, and, and we've got to work through things with them as well. But for these folks that we brought inside, you know, I, I pray and I hope that we are, we are good enough as a city uh, to keep them inside. I'll be right back with Supervisor Matt Haney. I'm Heather Knight, and I'm back with Supervisor Matt Haney. Before the pandemic, which seems like about a decade ago, you were focused on cleaning up the Public Works Department after um, the scandal involving its former director, Mohamed Nuru. But that seems to kind of fallen off everybody's radar, understandably. Um, do you think that, you know, anything's actually going to happen with that? And is that department getting any it better? It's not fallen off my radar, I promise. Um, I introduced the <laughs> Charter Amendment this week. And so we are moving forward with it. Which would do what? It Remind would, me because it, would create, a, it yeah. would create a department of sanitation and streets, which would be focused and accountable with a commission over it, uh, specifically on making sure that our streets are maintained and clean. I, you know, the issues that were there with public works, unfortunately, are largely still there. There have been no significant or notable structural reforms or otherwise to public works. 
I've met with dozens of employees, all of the unions that represent the workers there, and they've all said that the, that the, the, the department itself is structurally broken and should be split up. And, you know, most people think of public works and they think of street cleaning, except the overwhelming uh, responsibilities that they have are not street cleaning. There's really, and the person who's hired to run the department doesn't have expertise in keeping our streets clean. I mean, this is, it's similar to the creation of a department of homelessness. Can you imagine if we didn't have a department of homelessness for all its flaws that instead just a part of the department of public health or whatever? Uh, Of course not. And now the, the filthiness of our streets before was an, was an international embarrassment and a, and a huge negative impact on the quality of life of residents. But now it's also a public health issue. As long as there's feces on the ground, people have bathrooms, places to wash themselves, we have dirty streets everywhere, sidewalks, that is going to put people at risk from, from the pandemic as well. And so the, the, the issue of clean streets, I think, is only even bigger now than it was before. And, and the urgency is even bigger. And, you know, some things are just don't make sense. Like right now in the charter and in public works, or nobody actually has responsibility from the city for cleaning sidewalks. And that was yeah, one of the they things just don't that get cleaned. we're fixing with that, this charter amendment. Uh, and, you know, the reporting and the analysis and the, we need people who are laser focused on cleaning up our streets or businesses are going to suffer, small businesses, mm-hmm. residents. I mean, it's right now it's sort of like a, a side thing. And the, and the employees do an amazing job. It's not an attack on the frontline, but they're being failed. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you about drug dealing. Um, I was out not so long ago at um, Golden Gate and Hyde, and it just looked worse than ever. I mean, it's so blatant with the dealers right there. And then this long line of old guys passed out um, after, you know, buying their drugs. And it's just happening, you know, right in plain view. Um, police officers try to make arrests, but... Um, nothing much ever happens. What's going on with that? I also know the street level drug dealing task force hasn't been meeting because of the pandemic. I mean, it's, it's so sad and awful and deadly and dangerous you know, normally. Uh, and now it's doubly sad, awful and dangerous and deadly because not only are they selling deadly drugs that are continuing to kill people, but we don't have the ability to respond either to protect people with, with, policing in the same way, or even with public health resources in the same way. I mean, where, you know, the people that we would normally reach with, with uh, outreach and such are harder to reach or not having the same levels of outreach. Um, and the congregating of the groups itself is dangerous. I mean, I, you know, I walk up and down Hyde Street every single day, multiple times a day. Usually I and others who are just walking into the store or what, you know, whatever it is, are, need to walk into the street out of the way because of the amount of, yes, in some cases, tents and people living in tents, but often it's the drug dealing. And it's the drug dealing and drug use that, ha- that has gotten worse and more blatant. And it's infuriating. And, and I've, you know, I've been in touch with the captain about this issue on a regular basis, near daily. This morning, I, I called him to tell him about what I saw at the library last night and the concerns about it. And you know, I have been a part of and others, but, you know, trying to get the city to have a real strategy around this, an interdepartmental strategy with this task force. You know, yes, we can go out and make some set of arrests. And, you know, in some cases that does need to happen, of course. But where, where, where's the strategy here? 
And, and why is this all being pushed into the tenderloin and Soma overwhelming the, the residents and the small businesses? And, uh, and I just don't hear enough about it candidly from our city's leadership. I feel like sometimes I'm the only one at City Hall talking about drug dealing and drug use. When our residents, especially in the district that I represent, they, they're like, what is this? This is, this, is, this is so clearly and blatantly problematic and painful and hurtful uh, and damaging to our neighborhoods. Why, isn't, why doesn't this get the focus? So I, you know, there, there are some things that are harder to do during the pandemic. There's some things around policing that are harder to do. But you know, we got to get a handle on this. And we not just accept that this is going to be the way it's going to be. A lot of people, including some residents of the Tenderloin, feel like District Attorney Chase Bodine is not helping on that um, issue. And I know you endorsed him, but he has said, you know, the war on drugs doesn't work. We need more treatment. But he doesn't seem to be very gung ho about, um, you know, punishing drug dealers in any major way. So how do you... How do you explain why you endorsed him and why you're aligned with him politically when you also don't like this open air drug market in your district? Well, what he said to me and, and what he said, and, and I hope that this is a strategy that re- they can really get a lot more ambitious around and a lot more serious about, which is you got to go after the bigger fish. You got to make sure you're doing operations to really break down these larger networks. You know, that was something that he told me would be a huge strategy of his. Uh, he also has said, and I think what needs to happen is you know, when you arrest somebody and you bring them into the system, let's actually make sure we figure out what's going on and we stop them from just going right back out there and doing the same thing. And that takes it to interdepartmental effort. It takes adult probation. Uh, a hands-off approach is not what, what I want to see and not what my residents want to see. I want to see us more hands-on. <laughs> I want to see more committed, you know, and, and prosecution and, and, and all of that is a is a part of that and it has to be a part of that and he has to be a leader on it. And I, you know, I met with him a couple of times to talk about this issue and I, I really hope that he does step out more with solutions. Um, you know, and this, and this, and this uh, pandemic really threw a wrench in terms of a lot of things, you know, in terms of what can be done. Courts are basically not open, right? So in terms of what can be done with innovative solutions is, you know, some of that I understand. Um, but at the same time, for the chief of police, for the mayor, for the DA, and yes, for me as well, we should all be saying and committed to the fact that what's happening right out, out there right now is dangerous because of the epidemic and because of what they're selling and doing. And we have to stop it. Okay. Well, I'm glad we got you on the record. <laughs> so with that, we will segue into the lightning round. Um, you have answered some of these questions before on my old podcast, City Insider, but Fifth and Mission listeners have not heard. So <laughs> I will ask you these questions. Uh, what is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? I'm a huge Papalote fan. Um, you know, about 15 years ago, I lived in uh, in the area north of the Panhandle and used to go there all the time. And uh, now uh, they have a, a, a truck, which I stop by when I want a burrito. Um, which is down in south of Market area. Is it is it harder to work in a homeless hotel or be a member of the Board of Supervisors? <laughs> Definitely be a member of the Board of Supervisors. <laughs> Actually, when I when I go work in the hotel, I feel like I'm I'm getting a little bre- break from some of the craziness <laughs> and focus on helping people. It's very simple. Deliver them their dinners. Uh, you know, you get a smile <laughs> overwhelmingly, <laughs> positive feedback generally. 
but it's you know both things are related and connected and i and i'm and i'm really i love my job as a supervisor okay and, that, and your previous job before being a supervisor you were on the school board yes or no should the public schools reopen in person in august Wow. Yes or no. Actually, I was just appointed to help decide this. So I'm going to be the co-chair of the committee. Oh, really? Uh, I did not know that. Yes. Uh, co-chair of the committee to, to around the next steps related to schools and child care. Uh, right now, I would say I would say no. Uh, I don't think we know enough to say that. And I don't want to give that impression. But um, and actually, I was just work. You know, if you list the things that we need to figure out to be able to reopen, it's kind of overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So you would support um, continued virtual learning? Continued virtual, maybe with some partial, like there's maybe some students would come in um, and sort of rotate um, on certain days. So I wouldn't. How do you prevent kids who are already kind of, you know, we talk about the divide so much in public schools and the kids who are on the losing end and already suffering and not doing well, even when schools were open. And how do you keep them engaged if they're not on campus? This is not really a lightning round question, but since you just said you're the co-chair, <laughs> this is deeper. <laughs> I, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why we got to have some students come back in more regularly so we can check in on them. And this is very hard for people academically, for kids who already may have been falling behind, but also social, socially and emotionally, kids who are in special education. And this is devastating for, for kids. So, uh I, I do think we have to re-engage them as soon as possible. Uh, and I just recognize this has been very hard on people. And what about the parents and the, and the families who are teaching Tell classes? Tell me about it. One of my chief of staff uh, <laughs> has two kids and we, you know, she just, she's trying to teach classes and then introduce legislation. And it's just, it's remarkable what, what everybody's doing right now, but especially people with kids. I'm writing columns and recording podcasts with two little kids at home, so I can relate. <laughs> just like you. Just like you. Well, thank you for what you're doing and for providing the education for our, you know, for, for our city. Right <laughs> uh, okay. What is your favorite thing and least favorite thing about the Tenderloin? Uh, wow. Okay. My, fa- my favorite thing is that uh, people in this neighborhood – uh, look out for each other and know each other. You know, even a pandemic when I'm walking down the street, people say, Hey, supervisor, Matt, you know, I, I, I feel connected to the place that I live. And I think that's especially, um, you know, something that's, that's unique about the Tenderloin in a, in a, in a city where, you know, sometimes that's harder to, to hold on to. Um, my least favorite thing about the Tenderloin, uh, I would say, wow, that's a tough one. Um, I, I feel, you know, this is sort of a general thing, but I, f- I feel that my least favorite thing is that everything in the Tenderloin ha- has to be fought for. You know, we just can't, you know, during this pandemic, the Tenderloin has been so brutally failed and mistreated. And I wish that during this moment, it was different. And I, it's, it's, it's you know, and, and then actually, I hate, this is a, a twist on it, but I hate that the Tenderloin gets blamed for things that it didn't do. You know? like somebody else you know a person was mistreated and displaced and traumatized and kicked out of their house because they were gay or trans and then they come to the tenderloin and you know they're they're trying to get back on their feet here and then you know they're on the street and somebody looks at them and says wow the tenderloin is a terrible place so the tenderloin didn't do that to them (laughs) don't blame the tenderloin we're trying to help this person you know so I, i that's something that i'm always um i guess that's something that's good about the tenderloin but 
um, I hate the drug dealing. I, you know, I, I think, you know, I hate the, that, that we're dirty, dirty streets. We're not dirty, but that we're, um, you know, that, that there's feces and, you know, we're, we are the people who live here are so much better than that. And they deserve. Yeah. Last question. What is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? <laughs> yeah, Probably well, Zoom no, calls now. Zoom huh? and Zoom. And Zoom. Um, you know, I guess, I guess it's, it's related to what I just said. I always try to, you know, I try to get outside and walk around my district every day. Uh, mm-hmm. And I still do that. You know, I have a mask on. And now I'm finding that I'm using the, the, the uh, pit stop bathrooms all the time because I'll drink a lot of water and then I'll be walking around my district and <laughs> no cafes, no open, no facilities, no restaurants. Yeah. So I'm using these, these bathrooms now. So I'm having a new appreciation for that. But, um, you know, I like to get outside and, and, and walk around. And it, with all these Zoom calls, you can kind of just get caught in in just computer land and you got to get out still with people, you know, and safe and distanced and masks and all of that. But you got to be, you know, got to be out there. Well, speaking of which, I will turn off our Zoom call. (laughs) But thank you for joining me. It was fun to talk to you. Yes, you too. Thank you, Heather. Thank you to Supervisor Matt Haney for joining me today, to Karen Creighton for producing this episode, and to you for listening. Fifth Emission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.